your farm and your future matter to us. Welcome to Dairy Stream, a podcast focusing on opportunities and challenges impacting the future of dairy. This podcast is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, sister organizations fighting for sensible dairy policy in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Joanna Guza. Dairy Stream is proud to bring our listeners a variety of topics from implications of PFAS to analyzing dairy reports from the National Agricultural Statistics Service. In the end, all these topics impact the future of dairy and your bottom line. Today is no different. We're focusing on farmers versus food system outsiders. Who's calling the shots for agriculture? Our guest today is Ray Starling. He is an attorney, public policy professional, law professor, egg system thought leader, former special assistant to the president for agriculture and a farm kid from North Carolina. Probably should have said that first. He is currently the general counsel at the North Carolina Chamber and also an executive advisor with Aimpoint Research. He will be speaking at the Animal Agricultural Alliance Stakeholder Summit on May 4th through the 5th, which you can learn more about in the podcast description. In this first part, we're going to learn more about this problem. And then in the second part, we're going to dive into how to protect the future of agriculture. So Ray, thank you so much for being with us today. And if you could kick off just sharing, what is the farmer versus food system outsider problem? Yeah, well, thanks first of all for having me on, Joanna. This is a neat opportunity. I had gotten to do some work two or three years ago with EDGE and and actually got up to the Northwest part of the country. And so uh, it's great to be back talking with the same group of folks, very progressive in a sense of planning about the future of their businesses. And that's uh, that's always heartening to hear in the ag sector. What I'm talking about in this book and in our conversation today is something that everybody that's listening to this already knows. And that is that we hear people critique the farming and food system. We hear them say things that are clearly hyperbolic to us, but it sure sounds like they are meaning it sincerely. Mm -hmm. In fact, in the book, there's a chapter, chapter two is called Humpty Dumptyism, Ag Humpty Dumptyism, because there's so many people running around saying the farming and food system are broken. And they just say these terrible things about agriculture. And then, of course, there's us, right? Like we get together and we're amazed at how great of a job we do. We look at the statistics and the number of people we feed and the amount of money they pay for their food and, frankly, the sustainability with which we operate, the care that we actually put in place for the environment. So you've got these totally different competing views of farming and of the food system. And frankly, I wrote the book because I continued to hear those totally different views. And I'm like, one of them has to be wrong, right? Like they can't both be right at the same time. And to bring this home, Joanna, if you go on a college campus today, even if it's a college campus that's like one of our land grants or is otherwise involved in preparing folks for careers in agriculture, you could go in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences or whatever they call it at that particular uh, university, and you would find folks that say, wow, ag is doing an amazing job. Here's an example of the things we're working on. Look, we know we've got things we got to do better, but for the most part, we're a wildly impressive industry. Then you would walk out of that College of Agriculture, go 700 or 800 feet north, south, east, or west somewhere. You go into the College of Humanities and you find a sociologist or a psychologist or an English teacher who writes a blog about how broken the food system is. (laughs) Now, notice what these people have in common. 
right? They're very intelligent. They're on a college campus. They have credentials, right? I mean, there's something about people at college. Oh, it's professor, right? And, and I actually teach ag law at UNC, so I'm not making fun of professors. <laughs> I love it. But how do these two different uh, groups of educated folks come to such different conclusions about the state of the industry? And over time, and I must have asked 500 people this question, have thought about this for years. And I think in the ag space, we often like to say, oh, well, they're just crazy, right? They just don't get us. They're just not intelligent. That doesn't cut it. That actually doesn't explain why they say these things. So in the end, I conclude that there are insiders in our industry that have one point of view. And then there are those on the outside of our industry that have a totally different point of view. And what the book sought was to explore, why is that? Why does that persist? Why is there a chasm between what us insiders know about the industry and what the outsiders think and say and repeat about the industry? So that's the problem. You got farmers, the insiders, and foodies, the outsiders, and the two shall never meet. Right. And and Ray, I feel like I can really relate to you, but this podcast is focused on you. So I'm not going to tell you my stories and experiences that sure. I, have, I, no, have, I have. We should do that. It's probably therapeutic, <laughs> yeah, if nothing else. Right. I have I've felt the pain of everything you just talked about going to a non-egg uh, university. And I'm curious from your experiences. I mean, we just listed your resume. You can learn more about Ray in the bio. Is there a certain current event or something in your past that really made you have this aha moment to write this book and be so public about it? And not one, uh, unfortunately, Joanna. It's really been a, an amalgamation of many, but I can point to two or three that I think were more meaningful than others. One of them is just the observation that there are fewer and fewer and fewer of us in agriculture, right? I mean, the story of our success has frankly led to, and at least in numbers, there are fewer folks directly involved in agriculture. So think about the impacts of that. And again, that's not new. I get that. I get that everybody on this podcast that's listening to this already knows that. Mm -hmm. But I think we probably haven't thought enough about, so what does that mean? Well, it means a Congress that formerly had 20 to 25% agrarians now has less than 5%, right? And and maybe even that number is good, right? Since there's only about 2% of folks involved in production agriculture, or maybe 1%, depending on what the NAS uh, statistics say. (laughs) But long story short, I was able to observe in Washington, D.C., that I felt like our clout, which I still think we punch above our weight, I still think our trade groups and associations and ag lobbyists do a great job, but I'm very worried that over time we are in a precipitous decline in terms of influence in that field. So in the public policy space, I think our numbers are challenged. Number two, here in North Carolina, we've experienced massive litigation against pig farmers. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to talk more about that if you want to speak about it specifically. But let me just say, it suffices to say that that was not a organic movement, organic meaning lowercase o, not the methodology of raising crops or livestock, but it was just not a grassroots thing. What actually happened were people from out of state flew into North Carolina, started hosting meetings and recruiting plaintiffs, and they've now changed the way we grow hogs in North Carolina. They've principally changed it because we have a number of farms that no longer have hogs on them, even though there was no detrimental environmental effect of them having hogs on those farms. And so those are two really sort of strong images that pop in my mind. One is I worry about our declining political clout, and then I worry about the way outsiders are leveraging the legal system 
drastically and it's absolutely having impacts down on the farm, no doubt about it. Right. And I know it's not October yet. It's not Halloween. So we're not trying to scare our listeners right now. And in the second part, we are going to dive into how to protect the future, just so you're not like, hey, why the heck is Ray scaring us right now? We're lear- Again, we're learning about the problem. So I'm going to keep pushing Ray to tell us more about this farmer versus food system outsider problem we look at our generations today and that people are more further removed from the farm. Well, they had to come from someone that was a farmer at one point, but what are today's cultural trends that are causing the issues for today's farmers? That's a great setup, Joanna, because you touched on what we like to say, which is, oh, nobody, nobody grows up on a farm anymore. Not as many people. That's where all these problems are coming from. And I agree that certainly talking about our industry and guiding and leading our industry is different because there are fewer people coming off of farms. But I actually think that underestimates the magnitude of the challenge of ag production because it's not just that there's fewer people coming from farms. It's that in our culture today, there are fewer people growing up in a household where mom and dad make anything, right? Involved in production of any sort, right? So whereas dad might've gone to the factory Mom might have gone to the sewing plant, you know, might have gone to the the processing plant. I mean, you fill in the blank. Today, more people are accustomed to their parents driving to the software business or to the insurance business or to the bank where now I don't want to get in a fight with those people. I'm sure they make stuff. It's just not the way we think of, you know, if I think about manufacturing and there again, I got to be careful because the United States is still a massive manufacturing powerhouse. But there's no doubt that we've replaced a lot of those folks in those forums with machines. And and so instead of a person standing there working on that machine, we've got an engineer that's just keeping 10 or 15 of those machines running on time. And so when you talk about, and I talk about in the book, the cultural changes that I think exacerbate this misunderstanding or this problem, this disconnect between the insiders and the outsiders. Uh, One of them is that we're in a consumption society as opposed to a production society. We have more people that are very familiar with going on that app and pressing the buy it now button and it shows up at their door and they don't really have to think much about how did it actually get there? What were the steps for that to happen? I think if more of us were involved in pure production, pure manufacturing, pure own farm creation, development, harvesting, storing, then we would all remember, oh yeah, that product still has to come from somewhere. But when you grew up and, you know, maybe one parent's a teacher and one works in public policy, that's my daughter. That's the way she's growing up. I mean, we've got the grandparents that still, you know, show around the farm, but, you know, we don't make stuff. We, we don't come home with a physical product. And so she's not trained to think, oh yeah, here's what we made at work today. And of course, at the end of the day, what our farmers do is they, they make food, right? Or at least make the food inputs. So mm-hmm. I think that's a cultural trend that I would, that I like to point out is that it's not just that we're not from farms, it's that we're not from production backgrounds of anything. And I feel like it's only going to get worse just with the fact of talking about artificial intelligence. We'd say AI, but it makes people giggle in the in the egg industry when we say AI. No, it's, I, I would hate to ask Chat GPT what what to create a podcast uh, with with this author and this host. I, I don't. It might be better than me. So uh, I hope you don't do that. Right, right. So this this problem could be getting worse. And uh, one thing you referenced, Ray, in your first answer was talking about the impact on public policy, you know, from your experience as a past former presidential agricultural advisor, how does the food system outsiders impact public policy? And I'm scared to hear your answer. 
No, I, I want to start with saying, look, there's a lot of noise and, and we don't like the noise. We, particularly in agriculture, we get offended by the noise, particularly when it's so over the top, so hyperbolic. And what I'm talking about here is not the noise. I'm not talking about the activist that wants to glue their hand to the farm gate. That That's our play on, you know, these folks that glue themselves to these paintings and these museums. There will always be crazy folks that, that take crazy actions to try to bring attention to something that they feel deeply about. That noise, I think, has always existed and probably always will. What concerns me more, and I think what should concern folks listening to the podcast is, I think that group of, an activist is a strong word. I don't, I don't wanna make it sound derogatory, particularly because I kind of respect the way they're going about this. I think they're being incredibly strategic. I mean, I actually think the outsiders have figured out, we don't actually need to twist the hearts and minds of consumers. We can go up a chain and we can get the retailer or we can get the company that owns the retailer or we can get the people that invest in the company that owns the retailer. If we can get them to say, hey, I want to see ag a certain way, or I only want to sell products that are raised a certain way, that's a much more strategic, targeted, small audience. You don't actually have to win the masses over with that approach. You go up the chain and create change that kind of walks back down the chain. So essentially what I'm calling on people to do is to pay attention to those forums in which the outsiders have gone up a level and are, are playing chess and not checkers, if that makes sense. They are being more strategic. How are food system outsiders leveraging the legal system to get their desired outcomes? Yeah, and I definitely, I talked about this earlier with my own personal experience here in North Carolina. The best example I can give you is a very heartfelt one. You know, a lot of our, and, and I think this will be interesting for people to listen to, a lot of our exceptions in agriculture, a lot of our exemptions, in fact, we have this phrase here, we have a state motto called Esse Quam Videre in North Carolina, and it means to be rather than to seem. But because it's in Latin, the agriculture community jokes that Esse Quam Videre actually means agriculture is exempt. And th this is a joke in state capitals all across the country, right? And even to some extent at the federal level, if there's an issue coming up about regulating business more, taxing business more, something along those lines, the agriculture community stance has historically been, we're not for it or against it, we just want to be exempted from it. And that's worked because we've had a policy in this country and in our states of, yeah, agriculture is different. They deserve, because of what they do and how they do it, they deserve a little bit more velvet glove approach when it comes to regulations and, and to the law. And so this concept in the legal world is called agricultural exceptionalism, meaning that something is exceptional about that industry. And typically that is the fact that, look, it feeds people, right? I mean, there's something pretty special about agriculture that's different than any other industry. We actually provide one of the basic, basic needs for humanity. We provide food. And so we've always justified regulating agriculture a little bit differently, taxing agriculture a little bit differently, approaching ag from a legal perspective a little bit differently because of that exceptionalism. Well, if you were to go today and you were to look in academic journals because you wanted to assign a group of students to read about agricultural exceptionalism, you would find 10 or 15 articles written in the last 10 years that are absolutely critical of that approach that absolutely just take it down and say there is no justification whatsoever that would justify ag having these exceptions in the law. You know how many articles there are that justify it and defend it? 
There's not even one. Now, if somebody finds one, I want you to send it to me. And I'm saying this because I literally teach ag law and I wanted to introduce my students to this concept of agricultural exceptionalism, which has existed since the days of Thomas Jefferson. I mean, it's, it's not a new concept. But what we've seen now is an erosion of the idea that ag is worthy of those exceptions or that it is truly an exceptional industry. And we're seeing that a lot largely through, you know, legal scholarship. And so who's writing the article mm -hmm. that defends agriculture and that says, hey, it should still have those exceptions in the law because it provides this service to our society? I don't know. I, I haven't found them. I, it's not out there. And so that to me is, is a really great example of where strategically we're getting undercut because not, you know, the farmers listening to this are, and even their allied industry partners are not out there looking at legal periodicals, mm -hmm. but you know who is? It's that next generation of attorneys that we're either going to call on to represent us or that are going to be called on to sue us. Now, which side do you think they're being prepared more for to represent us and defend us or to attack us? That's a great example. That's not even in the book. I mean, that is a real live example that popped up in the last three months when I was trying to do legal uh, research and I, I can't find good material that balances out those two different points of view about ag exceptionalism. We're going to dive more into how to fix this problem. And Ray, as I'm listening to you, kind of trying to process this, so I don't know if this is a question or more of just a comment. When we talk about public policy and some of these legal matters, those take time. So farmers might say, Ray, you're talking about this, but we might not see it mm -hmm. for five years or 10 years. What would you say to someone that's like, oh, or do we need to start acting right now to educate those future law professionals about yeah, this sure. topic because public policy doesn't happen overnight or is there a certain time frame like the farm bill coming up do we need to be advocating more this year than we were last year because of certain public policy items that are happening yeah, I love how that, that you've asked me like nine questions there and I'm not going to remember them all and I wish I could because they're all good. So let's take, for example, your comment about the farm bill. I would submit to you that the largest challenges facing the future of agriculture are not even on the table to be discussed in the farm bill, right? So if you look at labor, if you look at biotechnology regulation, if you look at uh, crop input regulation, largely pesticides, new chemistries coming to the market, we've got massive, massive problems in all of those areas. The farm bill really doesn't touch them. I mean, it might fund a study. It might make a policy statement and say, hey, the, the committee finds this or we're going to issue a report that goes out with the bill. But at the end of the day, we don't we don't really fix, in my view, our most pressing problems in the farm bill. And I think our problems are different today than they were when the farm bill was started back in 1933, when it actually did address the problem of the day. So that's my diatribe about the farm bill it has nothing to do with the book. But you ask about, you know, really, how much time do we have? Where do we see this problem manifest itself? And, and I would say, you know, first, first of all, that's, that's really hard. I mean, I'm not going to be a doomsdayer. I'm not going to say, if we don't fix this in five years, we're all going to look around and be like, why am I in a handbasket and why is it so hot in here, right? So uh, what I actually think is happening is, is much more gradual. And so you don't see examples of this on a nationwide basis unless, maybe I'll come back to that, you, you do see it with regard to suing over federal rules that are being proposed, administrative actions that are being proposed. But again, go back to my example here in North Carolina. I mean, we have hog farms that now perfectly functioning, never find 
never uh, penalized, never violated their permits, they're now closed. And they're closed because, you know, plaintiff's lawyers recruited plaintiffs to sue them and shut them down. Mm -hmm. And so how much more acute example do you need than the fact that in a state that is incredibly agricultural friendly, we still have farms that no longer exist as what they were. They're having to be converted into something else at this point. And so I don't know how much time we have. I would tell you the best international example of this would be our friends in Sri Lanka who actually let the people with the bad ideas, the outsiders, you know, they let them assume the mantle of leadership. And now, I mean, I think everybody knows the president of Sri Lanka has literally gone into exile in Singapore and, and masses of public people are swimming in the presidential palace's swimming pool. I mean, this is what happens when you adopt bad ag policies that lead to more food insecurity. And and I now I'm on a roll right now. So if you have if you need to cut me off and ask another question, but I, I like to end by asking people to think about this. You know, it, it wasn't that long ago where not only was the United States food insecure, it, it wasn't that long ago that people actually died from malnourishment, right? And 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 we look around and we think, oh, well, that's not a problem today. Well, look, we've still got 41 million people in the United States on food stamps. 41 million people who have to have supplements to their income to be able to afford enough food. And there's always a big debate about the number should be more than that, or it shouldn't. I mean, there's certainly two sides to that. But my point is, if we actually listen to the outsiders as opposed to the insiders, my concern is at the end of the day, we are gonna be more food insecure. So it's one thing to hear these things. Oh, the food system's broken. Our farmers don't do a good job. Well, it makes us mad, right? We wanna punch back. We wanna defend ourselves. That's a good reason to get engaged, but it's not the best reason. The second thing we hear is, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna cost me money, right? I'm gonna have to change something on my farm. It's gonna cost me more, and I'm not gonna get as much out of it, right? I, everybody says, oh yeah, the consumer will pay for it. Well, there's a lot of research out there that basically says, no, consumer does not pay for it, at least not dollar for dollar, right? So the producer's lowering his or her profit margin. The consumer may be paying a little bit more, but not enough to offset the loss that the, the farmers got. I would even submit that's not a good enough reason to push back. Profitability, yeah, it matters, but at the end of the day, it's profitability, right? So we don't expect other people to care all that much about our profitability. To me, it is this third reason, which is a, a less food secure world is a much less safer world uh, and just our duty and our obligation to humanity. Uh, we have spoiled the American consumer so that they spend less of their disposable income than any other country in the world on food. And if that changes, I think that 41 million number, the number of people on food stamps, is simply going to increase. And, and, and I want to make this point doubly, doubly clear, Joanna. It's a moral argument. It's not, and that's why I go through that sort of, it's not anger, it's not profitability, it is moral. And what's so ironic is, I mean, this is the paradox, that the people attacking modern agriculture typically try them to wear the mantle of moral superiority. And at the end of the day, if we listen to them when it comes to the future of farming, we're going to create a world that is more food insecure. Now, who, who has the moral high ground in that conversation? The industry that is providing food in a safe, sustainable way at a reasonable cost, or even beyond reasonable, right, in terms of what people actually have to pay, is that group of people doing more for the morality of mankind 
or is it the attackers? And I think, it, again, to go back to the example, and I can't help but reference it again because it's just such front and center right now, the example in Sri Lanka where they decided, hey, we're going to quit using fertilizer. You know, we're just going to stop importing fertilizer or we're going to quit using fertilizer. And what happened was a country that was relatively food secure literally turned upside down. And that's what happens when you listen to people that don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> well, Ray, you're already starting to give us some aspects of how we can fix this problem and scaring us a little bit more. And you can tell that I'm excited to get into the second part. So we we just have a few more questions for you in this first part of Dairy Stream. You know, you've been making a lot of references to here in the United States, but is this food system outside a problem only here or is it around the world? Yeah, probably the best, uh, the quickest way to answer that is there is, and I know everybody that's listening is like, hey, quicker. Yeah, this guy doesn't know what that means. So I, I recognize I'm a man of many words. And, and the European countries are really the best example here. They've got certain standards. They've got certain ideas about food production that, again, make it harder to raise food, make it more difficult to be food secure, in my view. But because they have those ideas, if we want to sell into those markets, we have generally got to abide by their rules, you know, barring some sort of trade agreement where we've worked it out. And so the best example to me of the international pressure around agriculture is the fact that there are foreign governments that, of course, have their own uh, ag protectionism and their own uh, desires for how the food system in their own country should work. And that's fine. I mean, that's the sovereignty of another country that I, I don't disagree with the, their ability to do that. But at the end of the day, if it comes back to us and makes us less food insecure because we're able to make fewer pounds uh, per acre or fewer bushels per acre, uh, then I think that sort of illustrates or demonstrates how those international pressures can actually lead us to be more food insecure even here in the United States. We need to be caring about that. I know one thing I hear in the Midwest is the dialogue around the importance of exports. And if things are changing around the world, that's going to impact what we're doing if majority of our product is going to be exported. In the ag space, if it weren't for our exports, our profitability would be, would metrics would look very different. But with that said, at the USDA's Ag Outlook Forum, Seth Meyer, who's the chief economist for USDA, they literally predict in his presentation at the Ag Outlook Forum, they predict, and it's not the first time, I mean, this has happened in the last five years, a time or two, but the Delta is the biggest it's ever been that we will actually import more food into the United States in 2023 than we will export. So when we talk about the need to provide food security, not just for ourselves, but around the world, we need to take that seriously. Because if we are exporting less than we are importing, arguably we are at sort of equipoise in terms of, of how much food we're growing and whether we really are feeding the world or just barely feeding ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not a knock on American agriculture. That's frankly just a call to action that we better continue to be serious about finding the capability to produce more uh, with the same amount or maybe even less with import, imports. And final question for this first part of Dairy Stream. I know we've been spending more time just learning about the problem and we're going to dive into how to protect the future of agriculture after our break. But overall, Ray, when we look at the whole food system, the supply chain, where is the biggest problem or threat? And is there a certain agricultural category that's getting hit harder now? that we should be taking notes on to prepare us for other items that are the food outsiders are going to start attacking? I think animal agriculture is really on the front line of this. Animal agriculture has got to work the hardest 
uh, to avoid the potential impacts of, of these bad ideas that are coming from outsiders. Uh, and again, that comes from personal experience, literally having lived through some of that here in my home state. Uh, but it's, you know, it's just the issue du jour uh, picking on the animal ag industry, regardless of whatever cultural wind is blowing. You know, if, if the cultural wind is COVID, then we're going to say, oh, yeah, the animal processors and the animal farmers, they're, you know, doing a bad job. If it's uh, racism, then that's what we're going to harp on. If it's environmentalism, then we're going to say they're bad at that. Uh, if it's worker treatment, then we're, you know, we're going to say that about the animal ag industry. There is certainly more organized opposition uh, in that space, I think, than there is for, for any other subset of agriculture. Ray Starling has been our guest. He's the general counsel at the North Carolina Chamber and also an executive advisor with Aimpoint Research. He's also going to be a keynote speaker at the 2023 Animal Agricultural Alliance Stakeholder Summit on May 4th and 5th. We just learned a little bit more about the problem. Goosebumps are high right now, but we're going to stay with Ray and he's going to walk us through, you know, what are some steps that we can be taking to protect the future of agriculture? So stay with us. We will be right back with Dairy Stream after we hear from our sponsor. How can we create a sustainable future for animal agriculture? By building it together. And the Animal Agriculture Alliance 2023 Stakeholder Summit is your opportunity to help take the incredible progress we've already made to new heights. It's your chance to partner with stakeholders throughout the food chain and across commodities. To share ideas and form connections that will elevate the farm and food communities in ways that lift everyone. To collaborate towards vital progress and to learn how you can do your part to help protect, sustain, and advance our entire community. So wherever you are on the food chain, join us in making a real difference. Join us as Partners in Progress at our annual Stakeholder Summit, May 4th through the 5th in Arlington, Virginia. Registration is available through May 1st at animalag.org. The Dairy Stream Podcast is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. We have the understanding of the farmer versus food system outsider problem. Now, what do we do to protect the future of agriculture? Our guest today is Ray Starling. He's a general counsel at the North Carolina Chamber and also an executive advisor with Aimpoint Research. He's going to be speaking at the 2023 Animal Agricultural Alliance Stakeholder Summit on May 4th through the 5th, where you can probably get the opportunity to talk with him directly and learn more about this topic that we're covering today on Dairy Stream. Ray, could you start off by sharing who and where should communication start to help bridge the gap between farmer and food system outsiders? And is there any avenues or resources we should be utilizing? Great to continue this conversation. One thing I would tweak, uh, and that is, I do believe that one of the things we have miscalculated on when it comes to this conversation is that it's really about communications. We often say, oh, we just need to, and this is a this is a this is a thing with me. We just need to tell our story. Well, I'm a big fan of telling our story. In fact, I might have used that phrase a time or two in my life, but I think if we sit around and quote, tell our story to groups of 20 and 30 folks, and what often turns into groups of talking to ourselves, mm -hmm. then then we're gonna have circles run around us. And so when I think about that question of, you know, who and where should this communication start to bridge this gap, I actually think we've got to be more strategic than just thinking we can put these two sides in a room and we can have them talk to each other and we can come to some sort of negotiated outcome. 
I think the first place to start is understanding the leverage that the outsiders are actually effectuating in all of these different forums. And I just don't think we have a big handle on that. I don't I don't think people realize, and, and maybe when they stop and think about it, well, what does all of academia sort of added together, being very general, what do they think about the food system? I'd be scared to know, mm -hmm. right? What if we were to survey not every college of ag dean in the country, but every other college dean, the college of textiles, the college of humanities, the college of sciences, you know, the, the medical schools, if we were to survey them and ask them their views on agriculture, what, what would that be, right? And so when I think about academia, when I think about legal, when I think about international fora, when I think about the media, and, and I think about media separate from communications per se, mm -hmm. and when I see the media allowing things like their front page to be bought by a nonprofit advocacy association through a partnership, or, or something of those kinds, and that's very common today. It, it makes me wonder, are, are we working in the right places if we're just out there saying, oh, we just need to tell our story. Let's have another Farm City Week banquet. Mm -hmm. We'll give away some uh, edge hats, you know, and, and have a raffle, and, uh, and we'll go home that night and pat ourselves on the back. Well, if that's all we're going to keep doing, and I think we do need to keep doing that, I just don't think that's all we need to do going forward. And so the real place to start is recognizing that we have a challenge here that is not just communications based. It, it is much deeper than that. And and what is the phrase? You know, you don't have a problem until you you've admitted. The first step is admitting you have a problem, and and that's where we are. That's part of why I wrote the book. I wanted people to realize we have a problem here. And then, unfortunately, Joanna, I realized after about ten chapters, oh my gosh, I'm nearing the end of the book. They're going to want me to propose, what do we do to fix all this? I better be thinking about that. And uh, so that's that's actually pretty tough. I'm happy to take that question here in a minute. But I did realize, oh, wait a minute. It's not enough to just talk about the problem. We've got to talk about how do we fix it. <laughs> right. Yeah, actually, Ray, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, okay, we already know the problem. We understand the challenge. We got every everyone on board. So is the next step for communication taking a piece out of the food system outsiders playbook and not just talking to the consumers, but going up the chain of medical, the public policy, you know, professionals? Do we go up that way and follow a similar footsteps of the food system outsiders? And are we doing that? I mean, now in, I'm a millennial. Are we doing that on social media? Am I actually going to have to call and talk to someone? Can I write to someone? You know, what is that going to look like? Well, you just made me feel better because I feel like everything I've been talking about, you definitely got it. So maybe <laughs> I communicated better on this podcast than I thought I did. But that that is exactly right. I mean, I, I have four or five rules and the folks that come to the Ag Alliance uh, meeting will will certainly hear these and see these on the screen. But I think one of the things we've got to do is tell the truth, right? Like we like to give ourselves these accolades, like we feed the world or that the population is going to reach a certain level by 2050. These are two very famous things that we say in ag to justify our industries. Well, those are not great reasons to defend what we're doing. The, the better reasons are that we don't actually cause environmental harm, that we don't mistreat our workers, that we do treat the earth in a sustainable way, because it's almost like we're using those things as an excuse, and we don't need an excuse. We're, we're a sustainable industry. We treat workers and animals with respect. 
And so I think telling the truth in, in my, the way I mean it is, is deeper than just, hey, don't say anything false. It means let's really try to educate people about why we do the things we do. So A, tell the truth. Mm -hmm. Another couple of things I would mention is we do a great job in agriculture organizing vertically. So take like the Dairy Business Association and EDGE, right? Like everybody knows principally a dairy focused couple of entities, right? And they're doing great work. They're as progressive in terms of thinking forward as any groups in the country, uh, particularly in that sector or subsector. And so all that said, they focus on dairy issues. They probably don't pay a lot of attention when a North Carolina hog farmer is being sued off of his farm mm -hmm. by ag system outsiders, right? Because there's somebody else to worry about that. We let the pork councils worry about that. Or if there's a herbicide that's being taken off the market that's typically used for soybeans, well, well, that's a soybean problem. We let the American Soybean Association and the state soybean associations deal with that, right? So we have these ways of ordering off our problems and we're out there taking them on one at the time with each of our subsectors as opposed to fighting them horizontally across the industry. So that's a big thing to me. That's a big observation that I saw in Washington particularly when you would close the door, Joanna, and say, okay, what really matters to, you know, ag research, stuff like that is number seven, eight, and nine, and 10 down the list. When they closed the door, it was all about what is that price support in title one of the farmer, Farmville going to be, right? It was about, you know, I've got this singular issue that I'm here to talk to you about. And as long as you help me on that, we'll save all the other stuff for another day. Well, the problem with saving all those other things for another day is our opponents, if you will, or the outsiders are running circles around us in those regards while we worry about title one of the farm bill. So it's not, the action that I'm talking about is not, uh, it's not nuts. It's not crazy. I mean, there's a reason it happens that way, but we've got to be better about doing that horizontal organization as opposed to the vertical and then just being more strategic. I mean, you nailed it when you introduced this question and you literally used the phrase, go up a level and you, and you raised your hand up. That is exactly right. That is exactly a page out of the Outsiders playbook. And that is exactly what we've got to do. And one thing, Ray, I'd just be curious because of being a millennial, what's your communication avenue? Are we still picking up the phone? Or when I go and have a meeting with someone and they don't listen, do I go take it to social media where I have a larger platform where I can speak what I'm feeling because XYZ didn't listen to me? Yeah, look, I, I think there again, we're thinking too small. I mean, when some of the groups that have sued, particularly in the animal agriculture space, when they have sued us, they will say on their website or they will say in a press release after losing the case, we don't even care if we lost because we built the movement or we furthered our mission or we found new partners or we stopped and made people think about this issue differently. And so we think about communication as a medium that, and, a, and a real way to attack this problem. They think about a plethora of tools at their disposal and communication is really a sub part of it, right? They're actually out there doing other stuff that they then communicate about. And we're over here talking about how do we communicate better? Well, it's not just what you communicate, it's what you do. What are we doing to produce the next class of legal scholars that are going to push back on that? What are we doing to create the next law firms that are going to represent agriculture on a nonprofit basis the same way they have firms and organizations that represent their interest on a nonprofit and inexpensive basis? How are we training journalists 
for the next generation of ag media? How are we preparing people to negotiate trade deals for the future of agriculture? I mean, go down the list. How are we preparing future politicians in the ag space? Because trust me, they're doing it, right? And, and again, we do some of this stuff. I just don't think we do it enough, and I don't think we're doing it quick enough uh, to keep up. So that that's what keeps me up at night. Talk the talk or we walk in the walk. We got to have a combination of both. And you've touched on some of this on the next question I'm going to jump into. What can we do to safeguard the future of agriculture? And is this a step-by-step process or do we need to categorize things and, and focus on those areas? I would try to keep my answer to this one brief, and that is we, we've got to quit bringing the fire hose to the fire. We've got to actually build a, a, a better fire suppression system that cuts it off when it starts. I mean, think about, we need to think sprinkler system, not call the fire truck once the building starts catching on fire. I probably can't say anything more creative there or different than what I've already said, uh, which is just that we've, it, it is definitely a step-by-step process. It is not an acute, uh, we didn't get here overnight. We're not gonna get out of here overnight. Um, and we've got to have a methodical sustained, and that, that's like another thing about these communication efforts. I mean, often they run four months, five months, six months in endurance, and then we get tired of them and we move on to the next one. And so that's why I want to take it a level up from just talking about communication campaigns. I want to really think about, you know, how do we strategically flip the script? And one thing you alluded to is I think even just collaboration with other groups, other agricultural groups, and not just staying in our own dairy worlds because what's happening with pork producers is probably slowly happening to dairy farmers as well. Oh, you nailed it. Yeah. yeah. And frankly, that's why I'd compliment the Animal Ag Alliance. I mean, I think that's exactly what they're doing. They're bringing together several species uh, of interest talking about, you know, this strategic pushback, if you will, or, or even leadership. And Ray's going to be speaking at the Animal Agricultural Alliance Stakeholder Summit on May 4th and 5th. So I recommend that you check it out so you can learn more because, again, we're, we're somewhat diving into this topic, but I know he's going to go more into depth. He's probably going to get a lot of questions about how we fix this problem. Two questions as we wrap up Dairy Stream. How do we protect animal agriculture from a national and international standpoint? Probably starting to repeat myself at this point, but I, I think it goes to that strategic notion of preparing people to be to be on offense as opposed to being reactive and to being on defense. And we've got a great story to tell. I mean, I think we've got to maintain that enthusiasm. There's a ton of pride in the ag sector. Uh, one of the things that's really cool is uh, certainly here in my work at the chamber, we do a ton of polling. So we're constantly asking folks, what do you think about the ag sector? And the truth of the matter is the public still thinks pretty darn highly of American agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've got that wind at our back. We just need to take advantage of it. You know, Ray, now that you kind of got us like shaking a little bit, but w- there's some hope. You're giving us some light at the end of the oh, tunnel. For sure. <laughs> but I feel like I'm at the doctor's office. How much time do we have to turn this around? And what are your future predictions with the farmer versus food system outsider problem? Well, it's pretty dire if we don't if we don't pay attention. I mean, I, I think a lot of folks have the mentality that, hey, if I do my job and I do a good, good job and I take care of my little corner of the world, everything's going to be okay. And look, it's great that you're taking care of your corner of the world. It, it's super that you're doing a nice job on your farm. But if you're not engaged in these external atmospheres, uh, then somebody is going to show up on your turf, even if you haven't done anything wrong. And they're going to forge the future of the way you farm in a way that may be different than what you think is best for yourself, your family, your land, or even your animals. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I don't think there's any time to waste. I, again, I'm not alarmist. I don't mean to be pessimistic, 
but these are conversations that need to happen quickly. Uh, this is not something we can say, oh, we've got 10 more years on very thought-provoking conversation we've had today and an emotional roller coaster we've all experienced learning about this problem and then dissecting some of those items of what we can do. And I just almost feel like it's getting involved. It's working together. So our guest has been Ray Starling. He is the general counsel at the North Carolina Chamber and also an executive advisor with Aimpoint Research. He's going to be speaking at the Animal Agricultural Alliance Stakeholder Summit on May 4th and 5th. We recommend that you check out that Stakeholder Summit with the link in the description. Ray, we appreciate your time here on Dairy Stream and thank you so much for listening. I'm Joanna Guza. The Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative would like to thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate Dairy Stream. We value your feedback. And if there's something you'd like to hear, email us at podcast at dairyforward.com.